everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the podcast Invested. Where we talk about mindful money. Yeah, and, and what? Rule one investing. And what on earth to do with our money if we have any, which we don't, most of us. And how to use our limited time. And we're, we're basically focused around a really interesting problem in, in the world of investing, and that is that the current paradigm of investing says that it's impossible to get a high rate of return with low risk, um, that prices and values are all the same in uh, the stock market, and nobody can beat the market. Um, and so we just don't think that's true. We're coming from the school of Warren Buffett investing, which says that the whole goal of investing, the only actual investing that's possible to do, is when you buy something worth a lot more than you're paying for it. So Buffett's idea is you buy a $10 bill and you pay $5 for it. That's investing. Everything else is speculating. I mean, that sounds like you said we are thinking that that's a good way to do it. And I agree that that sounds really good. Um, I'm trying to learn how to do this. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm quite totally on the good ship fill town yet. <laughs> <laughs> But, and, and I have to say, now that the podcast has been going for a while, we have we have a lot of people listening to the podcast, and you have a lot of fans um, who applaud your questioning and are getting well, a lot I mean, out I of it. I appreciate that, but I'm you know literally I'm just asking for myself, and I think there are just a lot of people who have the same questions as me because it's like, what on earth are we doing? And you know, this whole thing is like a giant black. A mystery. When I look into the future, I see like gray fog when it comes to <laughs> money management. And well, I, I wanna... like if I could draw it, it would just be like a mysterious gray fog that's rolling towards me in a very like Voldemort kind of way. <laughs> and... <laughs> that's so, <funny. laughs> I mean, I think a lot of us feel like that. So I'm not, you know, Send your questions. Send us send us your questions and your comments to questions at investedpodcast.com. I love to read them, and uh, and we're trying to start using some of those. They're awesome. Um, but right now, what we've been talking about is what people are doing besides investing in the stock market, because this is an obvious question, right? Like, it's, it's not taking me being a non-money genius to think of, well why should I even invest in the stock market at all? It, it seems like there are a lot of other ways that people make money. I mean, I certainly watch the late night infomercials and apparently real estate can be one of those <laughs> ways if you hit it right and you live in an area with a lot of fixer uppers. <laughs> so yep. I don't know. Um, that's what we decided to talk about this time. So. And I'm laughing, but I, I actually love real estate. I think it's a great investment uh, asset uh, class, and we're going to talk about that today. But is it okay before we dive into this uh, particular asset class that I just kind of review quickly my basic principles of investing? Yeah, please If do. you don't mind, because I, I just wanted us not to lose sight of the essence of good investing, which is, as I was saying earlier, the essence of good investing is to know the value of a thing and then buy it for a lot less than that, pay a lot less. So, you know, it's the old, you know, buy low, sell high. And the rest of the world um, has a paradigm that says that it's impossible to buy low and sell high because all the prices in the markets are the real values. That's 
you don't you can't get a deal you know they just uh, the rest of the world of financial services believes that including the securities exchange commission including almost all of your financial advisors that the only way to get a higher rate of return is to take more risk and warren buffett um who is this where he's the school i'm coming from warren buffett ben graham uh charlie munger manesh pabrai david einhorn bill ackman all of these investors believe that it is in fact not just possible but it, it isn't even investing unless you're buying something for a lot less than what it's worth that's what investing is all about you have a margin of safety and you buy something that's a really good thing for a lot less than it's worth so, so how do all these other people who are not any of the people you just named how do they think you should choose what you buy well they think that you can't choose um specific things to buy. Therefore, the only way to invest is to massively, and in Warren Buffett's words, over-diversify um, by buying 100 things, right? Since you can't possibly know which one's going to go up or down since the price is equal to the value today, it's really a roll of the dice whether anything goes up or down in their view. So they're saying the market is efficiently priced all the time? All the time. And that since it is, um, you know, it's just a, a flip of the coin, whether a stock goes up or down. So the only way to uh, to invest is to buy 100 or 200 stocks or to just buy the index, you know, go buy SPY, which is the index exchange traded fund for the S&P 500 index. And then you have all 500 stocks as, as part of the index. And that is becoming the predominant investment strategy now. And they're and, and since it's it's robotic. I mean, you don't need to be smart to do it. Um, there's no reason to pay someone 1% of your money to put together a risk-adjusted portfolio using modern portfolio theory. It's just a computer program. And as yeah, a result... I keep hearing about them. I think we should actually talk more about them. We should, about and we these, will. Um, let's, let's put that on our list. Yeah. Because yeah. I think those, what, what are called robo-advisors, are they're, the wave of the good. future... I mean, there really is no point in paying somebody at Morgan Stanley a big chunk of your money just to hold your hand. I mean, that's all that it is. And those fees will end up over a 40-year period of time eating up an enormous portion of your retirement. So, I mean, enormous as in 30, 40, 50 percent of your retirement gets eliminated by those fees. So if you can go to a robo-advisor and get the same job done of simply buying the market and spreading your risk across multiple markets, why not, right? So let's talk about that another time. But to us, to us, that's not really investing. You know, you're just speculating in markets. You, you just hope a market goes up. You're rolling the dice. You don't know what you're buying. You don't know if one thing's better than another thing. It's a long way from what we would consider to be really true investing. Really true investing means you're putting money to work with an enormous degree of certainty that you're going to make money. And um, that only happens when you buy assets at well below their current value. So just think of it like this. If you're going to go buy a farm, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out farming. I mean, here's a farm in Iowa. It grows corn and soybeans. Uh, maybe uh, too many farmers bought too many farms uh, for too high a price and they got, they got it repossessed because the price of corn came down. And now some bank owns the farm. And you can go in and you can say, hey, look, is uh, corn and soybeans going to be higher priced in 20 years than it is today? Yeah, probably the world's going to have 2 billion more people. There's going to be more demand for food. 
All right, and then what are the inputs, you know, and what's the production of this farm? You could figure out what that thing's worth. It wouldn't be that hard. And if you knew that the farm is worth, you know, let's say you're willing to pay a price that would reflect that you're going to average about 10% uh, return on your money, shoot, you can figure out what that price is. And if you can get it for less than that, you've got a margin of safety. That's really investing. Everything else is just speculation. Well, and I also think of in sort of the classical sense of the word, you're putting money in to invest in a an enterprise that needs the money in order to grow. Like that money's being used for a purpose as opposed to, so in your farm example, it would be used to purchase the farm back from the bank and then refurbish it and start the growing season again. Whereas in just buying a market, it sounds like, that really is sort of more classically speculation. Well, it is. Am I on the right track there? It is more classically speculation, but I don't know that the track is exactly right because I know you're coming from sort of IPO land and venture capital land as an attorney. Yeah, right. That's right. different. Those guys are putting money into the company in exchange for ownership. Yeah, but I mean, what, I, I work with people who are very directly investing right. in a company and they watch where every dollar goes. Right. And because it is actually going to the company and the company is handing them either uh, a guarantee they'll pay it back or some ownership of the company or a combination of both, right? Right. right. So this kind of investing is called sort of primary investing. It's like you're on the first level. Um, what we're doing would be considered secondary investing. You're actually buying uh, the stock from those guys who got the stock from the company for putting money into the company. So we're in a secondary market um, when we're buying public stocks. So we don't, they don't literally directly, you know, it's not a primary benefit to the company for us to buy their stock. That's um, really interesting. Yeah, because there's a legal term of secondary markets that's sort of being thrown around now um, for people to buy. It's essentially a market of early stage companies. And yes. people can buy non-public companies through the secondary markets. So you're saying that the New York the New York Stock Exchange is just a secondary market for public companies. Yes, it is. It's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it like that, but that's pretty obvious, I guess. Yep. So it's really one step removed from a direct investment in the company. But that doesn't mean that the company doesn't benefit from it. Um, the companies uh, use the value of their uh, of their stock all the time as uh, as collateral for for loans, for example, um, as a way to compensate employees, as a way to judge how, how the company is performing. And if the stock price is going down like a brick, it can create a lot of fear around that company and it can result in some very, very tough things happening um, in terms of, of the way the company's um, assets are, are viewed. So, um, Investing in companies, in fact, has a really major league impact, even though it's a secondary market. Well, that helps me understand why you think that a company's value is different than its stock price, or can be different than its stock price. Yeah, because where you're coming from, um, those two things are pretty close together. Those investors Absolutely. are looking at the value of the business, not some market. Yeah. I mean, there's some, you know, future expectations built into that value, but I would expect the same is true of, of public companies. Yep, that's how we would look at it. The, the, the value of the business is predominantly in public companies, predominantly about those future projections of cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. 
So we would look at um, at a company a little bit like, well, just let's go back to that farm for a second, and then we can roll right into real estate because um, farming and real estate are pretty close to each other in a sense. Um, like you can think of the rent coming off an apartment building or the um, the income coming off the sale of the corn on the farm as being kind of the same sort of thing. And um, and they both have this underlying ground, right? You, you, you're buying dirt in one yeah. sense or another for real estate. So okay. if we were to look at the value of a thing like this, what we would say is, well, you know, if, if I paid all cash for this farm, let's say I paid $2,000 an acre, and um, let's say that the, a normal corn crop coming off of this farm, uh, or if, you know, farms around this region that are well managed, would be let's say a hundred bushels of corn, and let's say we can get five dollars a bushel. So now we're making five hundred dollars an acre of revenue. Okay. okay. Now we had we, that's what we're going to get from this thing in terms of our quote rental income. And then what we're going to do is we're going to have to pay money to fertilize it and plant it and till it and keep the bugs off and and then harvest it. And all that is expenses of our farm. And let's say our expenses add up to $400 an acre on average. So that would mean if we operate the farm the way a good farm manager would operate the farm, we should at the end of the year have $100 an acre on our $2,000 of investment, yep. okay. which is 5%. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the way we would look at this is we would say, is 5% a good return on our money in this investment? And we would say, well, it's not horrible. It's certainly a lot better than, you know, 1% in the bank or a half percent in the bank. 5% is not, not terrible right off the bat, right? But we would like more. So I would really like to buy that farm, not for $2,000 an acre, but for $1,000 an acre. If I got it for $1,000 an acre, then I'm going to get a 10% return on my farm. I have farm. to say, can I just interrupt for half sure. a second? Sure. Um, I think a lot of this is me learning what's normal because <laughs> I don't know, just is 5% is like an amazing return? Maybe it is. Um, I mean, I'm getting like, you know, one cent a month on my savings account. <laughs> so 5% maybe sounds awesome to me. But you're saying 5% is like medium? Yeah, I would say think about this in terms of uh, an investment in a very, very safe thing. Like the safest thing you could think to invest in that would actually pay you money wouldn't even be your bank account. It would probably be a United States government treasury bond. Um, and, and that actually becomes the gold standard for judging um, the rate of return of things. So, okay. So and that's, I'll add that now you have switched from talking about return rates to safety of investment. Which return rates? And and in the great theory of of modern portfolio theory, that's the paradigm that everything's invested on. That's how they come to the conclusion that you can't get a higher investment return. Like you can't get ten percent or fifteen percent a year without taking more risk. 
because they start with the idea that, well, let's look at a risk-free investment, which would be a U.S. Which is what you just said. Treasury bond. Yeah, that's risk-free. So I know if I, obviously, if I'm going to go out and get more than a U.S. Treasury, I would have to take more risk because, you know, who's, why would somebody take, you know, be willing to take less than the federal government with a no-risk investment? And, and besides, there's just no no-risk investment out there. You know, you just, there, the farm could have 15 years of hail. You know, your Grand Canyon River Touring Company might have no water in the river. There, you know, there's all these things that can happen in the real world. But the least things can happen to the federal government. Because it, <laughs> it the reason is, is because it has a printing press. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> they just print their own money when there's 15 years of hail. Exactly. <laughs> they can print the money, which makes us feel secure. For some reason, that baffles me. We've got a few guys running for president here who are more than a little bit upset that the fa- at the fact that for about 150 years, the United States dollar was connected to gold. And, and so the federal government couldn't just print money to satisfy its obligations. It had, it, it had the dollars, it had to be redeemed in gold. And so that protected the owners of the dollars from inflation and from destroying the value of the, the dollar. But in the last... 100 years since the Federal Reserve Bank was created, um, the federal government has had the ability to print dollars without it really being directly connected to gold. And the result is the dollar today will buy about what one penny bought in 1913 when they started this whole thing. Yeah, I think we should do, we should talk about the gold standard, I think, and how we are not pegged to it anymore. Yeah, we really should. Because you've heard the thing like... so many people have different perspectives on it. I've been thinking, Dad, tell me what you think about this. We should have a little invested podcast book club. And I know that there's some good books out there on the gold standard. And, and maybe I'll read one and, uh, and you can read it. And, you know, our three listeners can read it and we can all discuss it. <laughs> so listen, you three, I'm going to call out the book next time. <laughs> I have to tell you, we just had... Um, about 150 people come to Atlanta from all over the world. And almost all of them have been listening to you on this podcast. And it's one of the reasons they're coming to Atlanta to learn this stuff. So it's pretty cool. It's more than three. I'm just saying right now, it's more than three. And yeah, I think, it's more than three. And we're so we're super glad that all these people are listening to us. It's yep. really, really fun. I had a guy come up to me this weekend and said he'd listened to all of the podcasts twice now. And wow. was starting his third time through. Um, we should have him on the show and have him ask his questions. We really should. I sh- I'll try to track him down. Yeah. That was that was pretty cool. Okay, so we're veering off. Yeah, we Let's are. So go. we promise future discussions of, I'm making notes, I promise, of robo-advisors and the gold standard. Yep. But let's get back to real estate. And, and inflation, penny saved, penny earned, right? That kind of thing. I mean, when Ben Franklin said that, by the way, just before we jump back, um, a penny saved is a penny earned, a penny bought a dollar's worth of stuff. I mean, okay. think about that. That's pretty crazy. They didn't even have... I, I wasn't cognizant of inflation's effects is because of Ben Franklin not explaining it adequately. <laughs> well, we're taking over that job. All right, <laughs> let's go on. Let's go on to real it's estate. Let's, busy, you know. Because we, we started getting into it there with the idea that... 
Huh? Sorry, I talked right I'm over just, you. I'm just rambling about Ben Franklin. <laughs> well, we started getting into something pretty important when we started talking. When you said, I don't really know what a good return is. Is 5% good? Is 1% good? Is 10% good? So this is really, really important because you wouldn't know if you're getting a good deal on your invested dollars unless you knew what a good rate of return is. Totally. And I also think that... Um, if you talk to various investment advisors, they will tell you that your rate of return being good as a sort of qualifier depends on your risk level and depends on like what you're willing to do with your portfolio. Well, so I, so it, maybe it's not an absolute question of is 5% good? No, 10% is good. Like that maybe that's not a real, um, maybe that's not the right question. I, I think you're onto something incredibly important here. Um, and that is that your financial advisor, uh, coming from the the world of efficient market theory and modern portfolio theory, is must tell you that there's no such thing as a quote single good rate of return, precisely for the reasons you just said, because it all depends on how much risk you're willing to take. So if you're willing to take, you know. 10x risk, then a 1x rate of return isn't going to cut it. You need a 10x rate of return for it to be good. And if you're willing to take very little risk, and, and then a, a T-bill rate of return would be a good rate of return. In other words, rates of return are relative to risk for the rest of the financial world. They're then, relative to your investment. Relative to the riskiness of your investment, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm just, yeah. Yeah. Cause, okay. Because this isn't true. <laughs> Let me just state uh, right now. I have a feeling you're going to try to dismiss this in about three sentences. No, 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 no. We we are going to have to dive deeper into modern portfolio theory as we go. But I, I don't want to get all into it right now, except to say that the theory is that risk and reward are necessarily connected, that you can't get a high risk, high return with low risk. Therefore, for them to tell you what's a good rate of return is completely relative when we don't think so. We think that there are such things as absolute rate of return, not relative rate of return. Uh, an absolute rate of return idea says that if I can, let's say, double my money every five years, that's good. Okay. All right. Now, if I can double my money every five years without taking any risk, that's really good. Okay, with me so far? So yeah. the low the I so I already know that what I'm targeting is a, a very absolute rate of return. I'm targeting 15% a year. That's where I want to be. I don't There's care no way about relative investments with no risk. There's okay. no way. All right. So let me just say you're right that the SEC has made it very clear that they are not about to let us talk about risk-free investments. I mean, that's great. And yay, SEC. I also think that in real life, there is no such thing as a risk-free investment. And you just said that about 10 minutes ago. Okay. I mean, you can have hail for 15 years and the U.S. government could go out of business. It is technically possible. And yet the best investor in the world says, if you buy a wonderful company at an attractive price, you are certain to make money. That's just not, there's no way. I won't <laughs> believe it for a second. So you're telling me that Warren Buffett is wrong? Absolutely. Okay, fair enough. 
I'm so, too much. I'm too much of a lawyer to let that that one slide. Well, then, then let mean, me just come on. Let me just attempt the pathetic defense here, and you can chew it up. Here's what Buffett. I think I hate to put words in the master's mouth, but here's he's not here, so I'll have to defend him. The basic ideal of this type of investing that we call rule one investing is to buy a $10 bill for $5. Because if you can buy $10 of value for $5, you're certain to make money. You just don't know when necessarily that you'll make it. Um, to put this in the real world, Buffett recently just bought into Deere, John Deere tractor. And he was asked on CNBC why he's buying John Deere tractor. And his answer was, is because in 10 years, it'll be worth more than it is today. Okay, so from sure. Buffett's point of view, there's a, there's a, I mean, we could argue about the semantics of certainty, quote certainty, because yeah, I'm I pretty, mean, that's what I'm I have pretty a certain I'm gonna get up in the morning, but I might right. be wrong. At some point, you will be wrong about that. <laughs> so will all of us. So. <laughs> okay, I mean, point I, I'm well not, taken. I'm not making a genius or a subtle <laughs> point here. The point is, there is always some risk, that's all. And I'm sure that Buffett knew that when he made that statement, he was just accepting that we all understood it and was using a tiny bit of hyperbole. Well, I guess a tiny bit of hyperbole. Um, I think a pretty much insignificant amount of hyperbole, really, in the sense that um, pretty sure I'm getting up in the morning, pretty sure the sun's going to rise. I mean, I could be wrong, right? There's this old inductive... There's a lot higher probability of the sun rising than you getting up every morning for I, the next thousand years. I hear you. And there's an inductive logic problem that says that um, a, 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 a chicken... Um, here's the screen door, you know, the sun rises, the screen door slams, the farmer walks out and he gets fed. And that goes on every day for 40 days in a row. And then one day, and then, you know, every day know where this is going? he concludes with, with logic that when the sun comes up, the screen door slams, he gets fed. It's, it's a reasonable conclusion, but it isn't certain. Because mm -hmm. on the last day of his life, the sun comes up, the screen door slams, and he gets his head cut off. So... I absolutely agree that certainty in the real world is something that doesn't exist. And I think that's probably the basis of the SEC contention that it doesn't want guys like me out there saying, hey, we've got investments that you can do that are certain to make you money, certain to make you money. And that would yeah. probably go right up and include, you'd have to include in that what the rest of the world calls, a what, what the same guys call a risk-free investment, which is kind of a contradiction in who, philosophy, who are, isn't it? Who are the same guys? These are the same guys. The SEC, the, the, the financial services industry, looks at a treasury note as a risk-free investment. They know the federal government's going to pay it off. But given oh, the I logic of the, of the use of the word and of certainty here, then we're going to have to say that even that's not risk-free. It's just as risk-free as you can get. Yeah, and so let's just agree that we all understand that that's what you mean. I just want to make sure everyone understands that that's what you mean. Okay, that fair enough. That it's as risk-free as you can get. Now, given that as a definition of risk-free, as risk-free as you can get, being a U.S. Treasury note, then what happens when I know I'm buying $10 of value and I bought it for 5 bucks? Where would you put that on your level of risk-freeness? Oh my gosh. Well, now that I know about inflation, I'm going to say... <laughs> wait, wait. How does inflation get here? Well, apparently inflation can take your $10 bill and make it worth $0. Oh, 
Well, not this quickly, depending on what's happening in the world and the World Bank and the Federal Reserve and what they're doing with their inflation policy. And every time I talk about inflation, I start to sound like this because, oh, my God, and and now crushing again, the Voldemort. (laughs) (laughs) He shall not be named. (laughs) But but you have to apply Voldemort to both the $10 bill that I just bought for $5 and the U.S. Treasury note, which is going to be massively more Voldemorted by inflation than my $10 bill. I have a lot more inflation protection on my $10 bill than you would ever have on a 2% 10-year T-bill. You could be crushed there in a matter of a year or two with inflation. But my $10 bill, that's going to be that's going to be good even though inflation is cooking along. You have spent like 3 episodes telling me how if I put my money under the mattress, my money is going to lose value. Oh, it does. Suddenly my $10 bill is super bomb-proof and better than a treasury <laughs> bill? Well, I'm so confused. <laughs> well, okay. I have to admit, your $10 bill under your mattress is losing value to inflation. But here's my point. You didn't pay $10 for your $10 bill under your mattress. You only paid $5 for it. So you have a lot okay. of inflation room before that sucker gets down to 5 bucks of value. That's what I'm okay. saying. Okay. There you okay. go. So let's consider the risk factor of buying $10 bills for $5. And I'm going to just preempt this and say that most people would say you can't do it. All right. You just can't do it. No such thing exists as a $10 bill for $5. There's one of the guys that's a leading uh, commenter on this is uh, Burton Malkiel at Princeton, who wrote in 1973 a book called Random Walk Down Wall Street, which became the Yes, so I have started reading the book. The Bible. I, ha- I haven't finished it yet, and yeah. I am reserving my thoughts till the end, but I have started it. Okay. So well, it's, the, it's the basic, um, you know, layman's Bible of efficient market theory, where he essentially calls Warren Buffett a monkey flipping coins. So, I have to say, he's a good writer. It's an entertaining book. I mean, for, <laughs> for a book about money, it's pretty entertaining. I mean, it's been around 40 years. It, it would have to be a pretty good read. Well, and he updates it. I have the most recent edition, and he's um, there's a bunch of current commentary in there. Do you realize how distressed I'm going to be if we're doing a podcast and all we're doing is sending people off to become fans of 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 Burton Malkiel? No, I'm reserving judgment. <laughs> I was commenting on his writing style, so don't worry. <laughs> Calm down. I mean, don't touch your pearls quite yet. Okay, so here's here's the basic question: Can you buy a ten dollar bill for five dollars? And if you can, how much risk do you have compared to the U.S. Treasury notes? And so I'm going to stipulate a that you can. And B, that your risk is even lower than what you would take on a U.S. Treasury note. Because you have so much room to lose money before you actually lose money? Yep, exactly right. So then all of this, I think really this discussion kind of boils down to whether or not you can buy stuff on sale. Whether or not that's actually possible to do in, in the farming marketplace, right, for farms in Iowa. Can you buy them on sale ever? Can you buy a building on sale? Can you buy a townhome on sale? Can you buy, uh, what are other markets? You can buy a stock on sale. Can't, I mean, is it possible out there in the real world that there are events which happen which would actually make it possible 
to buy something on sale because the SEC and the financial advisor paradigm says that you can't. Well, as someone who's lived through the tech bubble, which is the opposite of things being on sale, (laughs) and as someone who works in an industry where people are commenting a lot that we're in another tech bubble, uh, it, it seems somewhat reasonable to me that maybe the opposite would happen. I love that. We're getting at the answer coming at it from the opposite point of view, which is, I mean, let's discuss whether or not things can be vastly overpriced. Could you have real estate that's vastly overpriced? Could you have technology stocks, IPOs that are vastly overpriced? Do 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 markets that's, that's get into bubbles? I think real estate is really useful because it's something that's uh, it's a little easier. It's it's more concrete. I mean, it's literally more concrete than <laughs> an imaginary stock in a computer. Um, and and you can see very easily in the real estate market in your town when it's overpriced and when it's underpriced. Um, yeah, speaking of concrete, do you know they built the new World Trade Center out of concrete all the way up to the top? They poured concrete all the way up that thing. And now if you're a crazy person, terrorist, and want to fly a plane into it, the plane is going to bounce off. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. It's built wow. to take a hit. You're talking about the Freedom Tower, the right? The Freedom Tower. I just so think that rocks. They built this thing. And you can fly a jet into it, and it is not going to fall down, and it is not going to burn down. <laughs> just think that's cool. Anyway, concrete real estate. So let's yeah. talk about real estate in this context. First off, is it possible that real estate could become massively overpriced? What do you think? Yes, I think it can. And has it? Especially if you live in Las Vegas. There you go. Especially if you live in Las Vegas. So... Things can get ridiculously overpriced, um, and we've seen that in 2006, 2007. What happened was the federal government made money very inexpensive, number one. So, you know, obviously, if you're looking at the the uh, monthly payment that you're going to make on real estate, the amount of interest you're paying makes a big difference in how much you can pay for the house. So the lower the interest rate, the more you could pay for the house. And so they lowered interest rates, lowered interest rates, lowered interest rates over about 10 years. And not surprisingly, house prices went up because people could pay more for them. All right. And then the second thing that happened is that they made it possible for banks to lend money without taking any actual personal risk of losing their money by having two federal agencies buy those loans from the private banks. And that, and then the federal government encouraged those banks to make loans to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get a loan. And the banks did so. And they found out they, you know, private enterprise came in and figured out how to package up those loans and sell them off. And everybody's happy right up until um, real estate prices got so high that you you couldn't make any sense out of the real estate price that you just paid in any way. Like you couldn't rent it and make your payments. You It would make absolutely no sense to buy this house for this price, except for one thing, and that is some bigger fool is going to come along and pay more than you did. Which worked really well for a few years. <laughs> it did. It, did. it, it was did. stunningly effective. And there probably are people out there who got out of the real estate frenzy before it all collapsed, who actually made a million dollars, starting with absolutely. nothing. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely starting with nothing. So, um, yeah, we would say, and then, of course, as real estate prices reset themselves, they came down. 
Now, the problem is that because it wasn't based on reality or any like actual underlying value in the real estate market, there was no way to know when that crash was going to happen. So everybody I know who made money in that real estate bubble, completely by chance, they just happened to sell right before it crashed. I know, totally. my, my cousin, you know, your uncle, um, um, or your second cousin or whatever it is, when he's my cousin, I don't know what he is to you, probably second no, I, cousin removed once or something. Anyway, Bobby and Gary both unloaded their houses in California um, in 2007 and got out at the top. And both yeah, of them did it because they thought it was overpriced, you know? But I, as you say, it was, how, what, what kind of a metric would you use? I mean, how, what data would you use to determine that housing had become stupidly overpriced? And there actually is one. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> of course there is. And we what come... do economists do with their time besides prove my common sense wrong? <laughs> well, I don't think economists have done it. They probably don't think there is one. But investors have done it because investors are looking at things differently than speculators. And an investor is going to look at a house or an apartment and just say, well, I'm willing to buy this only if I get a certain return on my money. Now, now we're coming back full circle to this idea that is 5% a good return or not, right? Is 5% a good return? Well, it turns out that if you looked at the prices that things that people are willing to pay in all kinds of markets over all kinds of time, over 100 years, looking at real estate prices and stock market prices and so on, that people are willing to pay a fairly narrow range for an investment that they're going to make that isn't speculative. It's not depending on the price to go up through the roof. It's just based on I'm going to put money into something and I'm going to get cash flow back. It turns out there's a kind of a, a limit to what people are willing to pay. And it's a fairly narrow range. And it turns out that 5%, you know, relative to what's going on with inflation and all that, but in, in relatively normal times, 5% return on your investment is okay. 6% is pretty good. 7% starts to get up there a little bit. 8% is quite high. This is in real estate. In real estate. And this is not a- Is a, it like residential real estate, commercial real estate, everything? This would be real estate that you intend to rent and you're not buying it on speculation. Okay. So it could be residential houses, it could be apartments, it could be commercial. Yeah. So. But it's so not those numbers again. Five percent's okay. About five percent to eight percent in that range. Okay, so if you're getting eight percent on your real estate investment, you're feeling good. You're feeling really good. Okay, so all things being equal, you know, it's not a rundown place or anything. If you're getting eight percent, you're in most markets. You're that's considered quite good. Now let me let me explain what that means. You pay for this place. Let's say you pay a hundred thousand dollars for it. And you're renting it out and you're getting, let's say, I don't know if you can actually do this in the real world, but let's say you're getting $1,000 a month. Okay, so you're receiving $12,000 on your $100,000 investment, which is 12%, but you have expenses, all right? Now your expenses do not include a mortgage in this analysis. It's, we're going to do this analysis assuming you're paying 100% cash for this place. So we're not going to include a mortgage. When you say it doesn't include the mortgage, you mean like it doesn't include interest payments? Interest payments or principal payments at all. It's just I paid cash for it 
and I want to get an 8% return. So first off, I see what kind of rent am I going to get? Okay, I'm going to get $12,000 a year. Then I have to pay taxes. I have to pay insurance. I have to pay maintenance. And if I'm not in the business, I have to pay someone to rent it out for me. So these things are all costs of that piece of real estate, and I have to deduct that. So let's say that my deduction is $5,000, and I end up with $7,000 at the end of the year. Now, I probably have to put a factor in there for it being vacant once in a while, you know, something like that. So maybe it's $6,000 Okay, is what I get. I can accept that. Okay. So in real estate, I, I would basically say, all right, I'm going to net... This is after everything else. I'm netting out. We call that netting or net. Um, what's back in my pocket is $6,000. And I paid $100,000 for the building. So this has what we call in real estate, we call a cap rate, a capitalization rate. How? What's the rate of return on my capital? And the answer is 6 or 6%. In real estate, if we're buying things with a six cap, that's right now in commercial properties, right about right. That's about what things are going for. That's would be considered retail. Saying that you get a six cap is another way of saying that you're getting 6% return. Right, okay. exactly. Now, if I can buy um, commercial property, residential property, and get an 8% return on my, my, my $100,000, $8,000 a year, I'm doing quite well in this market. I've probably gotten a bit of a bargain. Um, all things being equal, I should be able to sell that to somebody else for $6,000 of rent. So if, if I'm getting $8,000 from it and, and I can sell it to somebody who'd be willing to, to take 6%, then I know that I can sell this building for about 130000 bucks because $8,000 of income on 130000 would be 6%. So I've just gotten a bargain on the building. Got now. It. Now, it's very unlikely somebody's going to sell this to me for $50,000 because, gosh, if I can rent this out and have $8,000 coming in and I've only paid $50,000 for it, I'm getting a, 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 like, what is that, like a 16% per year rate of return. I mean, it's just enormous rate of return, gigantic. I mean, it's so huge that, you know, probably anybody who owned that would recognize that they could sell it for more. Probably they would, <laughs> right? They, they would have to be either a government agency who didn't care or a lunatic. <laughs> or, or they need to sell it really quickly for some reason. I, mean, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're yes. a bank and they... They're a bank and they have the, the regulators are out there looking at them and the bank and they're saying, look, you don't have enough cash to justify um, all the accounts you have. Therefore, get more in cash and we don't we're going to give you 30 days. That bank might unload that property. Yeah. That it got in foreclosure for that kind of a price. So we can see in the real world there are possibilities here that we might be able to pick up something at a bit of a bargain or maybe an extreme bargain, depending on what's going out in the environment there. And we can also see that they're very rare. We, we can see that they're very rare, but here's the really important point. They are absolutely expected to happen. In other yeah, words, there's fair a enough. cycle. In any given city, there's probably some building being sold at a very at a big discount to what it's actually could be sold for. 
Probably. And, and various depending on the market and so on. So the key thing to understand about markets is they fluctuate um, in terms of the amount of fear that's going on relative to that market or the amount of, of irrational exuberance about that market. The market may be vastly overpriced at one point in the cycle and vastly underpriced at another point in the cycle. And the key point here is that while any individual deal is probably pretty rare, there are deals like this going on in markets almost all the time in some changed, markets. You just changed what you were saying because what we were doing was talking about an individual instance of, of one building being discounted in a market. Mm -hmm. And then you said that in it, the entire market can be undervalued or overvalued. Exactly. So it can be that this the, the essence of this, and we're going to have to wrap it up on this, but the essence of good investing depends on understanding that there's these two emotions that go on out in the real world that are not part of the academic theory of modern portfolio theory, which says that price and value are always the same. You always have to take more risk to get more reward. These two emotions are not part of that theory. And the emotions are fear and greed. And when you bring those emotions in, in other all words, of a sudden, being the, human, <laughs> being human, changes everything in terms of what's a good investment. And I, I think we should wrap it on that, and then come back and I'll dive in deep with you on a on a Warren Buffett real estate purchase in New York City. On yeah, the next I mean, one. I have to say you've convinced me so far that real estate is probably a really good investment, and I should definitely just go do that and skip the stock market entirely. <laughs> or how about you could buy real estate? in the stock market and not have to clean toilets. Hmm. That sounds like an index fund that involves not choosing particular properties, which is anti-rule one. Ah, uh, not so, but oh. not exactly not so. We'll come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that. So I think for now, um, gosh, I think it's time to go play. What do you think? All right. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Thanks, guys. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you got to do is enter the special podcast code stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, stockpile, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion, and it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.